welcome to GodPod. This GodPod today is a recording of a discussion which we held at St. Melitus College recently with two really important figures in contemporary theological life. One is uh, Miroslav Volf, Professor Miroslav Volf from Yale University, who is the author of a number of really significant theological texts over the years, including Exclusion and Embrace, uh, and more recently, uh, his book on flourishing. The other person is uh, Father Raniero Cantalaresa, who is a preacher to the papal household, a very significant figure within the Roman Catholic Church, a theologian and a preacher uh, to the household of the, uh, the, the Pope in the Vatican. And uh, these uh, two important figures were, were brought together here at St. Melitus for a conversation with me, uh, Graham Tomlin, the Bishop of Kensington, uh, on the themes of obedience, freedom and joy. May well listen to the previous God Pod, which was our presentation of three short talks on those topics. And what you're about to hear is the ensuing discussion on those themes. It's moderated, held together by um, the Reverend Dr. Donna Lazenby, who is one of our um, tutors and lecturers here at St. Melitus College, director of uh, St. Melitus Southwest, based in Plymouth. And she is um, the person kind of steering the discussion. Um, but the other three voices you will hear is those of Miroslav Fulf, Raniera Cantalamessa, and my own voice, Bishop Graham. So uh, I hope you really enjoy this. Uh, I found it a fascinating discussion to be part of. Those themes of freedom and obedience and joy uh, flow together in really creative ways. Uh, because in Christian faith, they belong together, even if in other parts of other ways of thinking, they don't really hold together at all. I really hope you'll enjoy this discussion as you listen to this podcast. each other so much, they relate to one another so much, I can imagine your thoughts are already sparking. So I'd love to give you an opportunity to actually respond to one another based on what you have just been hearing. I wonder if anything has come to mind particularly, anything has especially struck you as your fellow theologian has been speaking. Shall I start? Absolutely. Um, Hey, uh, fascinating to, um, to hear both of you um, on these topics. And as you say, Donna, they, they, they do relate to each other very, very well. I think the, the thing that struck me about, um, uh, or that came to mind as you were speaking, Father Raniero, was this, um, this very strong idea in Christian faith that, we, that our obedience is to a person, not a principle. And uh, you were talking about Aristotle at the beginning, and um, the idea that in maybe Aristotelian thought or maybe in somewhere like Immanuel Kant the idea is that obedience is to a principle, it's to a, a kind of heteronymous law but actually in Christian faith we're invited to, to, to obey a person and that's a very different thing uh, we're invited to, to, to obey a person that we are invited to trust uh, and I think also what really struck me about what you said is that um, in our obedience to Christ we are obey, we are a, called to obey someone who is himself obedient to the Father. And so we are caught up in his obedience at the same time. So that, that was my reflection, that, that idea of obedience to a person. And maybe related to that, again, my thought um, uh, arising out of what you were saying, Meristaff, was um, uh, on your comments at the end um, about God being our sort of fundamental goodness. 
And I was reflecting on those passages of the Psalms where it talks about God rejoicing over his creation. So actually God rejoices. God is the original rejoicer in the sense that the world was made for joy. It was made for the joy of God. It was made for our joy in creation. So again, we are caught up in God's joy. Um, we don't sort of generate joy from within ourselves. We are caught up in God's rejoicing over his creation. He's recognizing that you know, at the end of the creation story, he recognized that it is good. And we join in that statement, it is good. So those are my thoughts. We, um, Christian obedience is a sharing in the obedience of Christ. It's a kind of communion with Christ because we, we were baptized in Christ in his uh, obedience. And to, to obey to God is to be with Christ, to, to, to communicate with Christ. We have the life, the, the same sentiment as in, in Christ Jesus. I wanted to, um, uh, <clears throat> to ask a question which, which was implicit in my talk. How can we obey God like Jesus did? Jesus, it is quite natural for us to think that Jesus obeyed to the Father. How can we obey to God, practically? And I have a suggestion how to, to obey to God. Uh, in my opinion, there are two ways of, of, of deciding something, to buy something, to make a visit, to make an appointment. Either you decide what to do, and then you get in your, on your knees and pray that God would bless your decision, and, give a, a good outcome. There is another way. You, before deciding, you present the question to God in prayer, of course, very simple. And to ask God if he's uh, uh, in accord with you to, to do these things, this thing. Then uh, you do. But uh, whatever you, you, you do after that, it, it is an obedience because you have... Uh, uh, divested yourself of the independence, autonomy. You have given a chance to God to intervene in your life. Of course, you, you don't get the answer explicitly, uh, uh, do this or do that, but uh, you have submit to God. Uh, the, 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 this phrase, present the questions to God, was a, a suggestion that the father-in-law gave to Moses one day. Present, you stay in the presence of God and present the questions to God. How many things changes in our life? It changed in my life the day I started submitting, a, 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 before deciding something, ask God if he was, uh, he was happy with my decision. So it is not a, a very abstract uh, principle to obey obedience to God. Once you decide to, to obey to God, uh, through Jesus, because to obey to God means to, to obey to the gospel and inspirations, then also uh, obedience to the civil authorities or other obedience become an expression of this uh, deeper obedience uh, to God, which makes you free to obey. We are free to obey. Uh, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a very interesting comment about um, uh, original, God as an original 
rejoicer, um, uh, which is to say that, uh, as you mentioned, joy isn't something that's simply generated from within, but in some sense it's always already there. And that very idea you can find in um, uh, one of the parables of Jesus. Uh, when Jesus says in the parable, the talents to the good and faithful servant, enter into joy of my master. It's not, I'm going to give you a reward, you're going to start rejoicing or something of that sort, but rather you're going to enter into a space that is qualified by rejoicing. So that I think this, this sense that um, we enter into already existent joy is a very important one. But that has, I think, very practical implications. Um, creating, a, a, what, what would it take to create a space of rejoicing? Mm. I mean, we walk into a wedding and then suddenly our, uh, our gate is lighter. And then when we were, when we were uh, outside, we already somehow, something is dancing within us because there is joy in that, in that space. And, and I think um, when we think of our churches, when we think of our homes, uh, when we think of our eschatological hope, it's kind of a hope of a space and of joy and then not simply of the, of the joyous, uh, joyous heart. So that, that seems to me a, a very important part of in, in participating in this joy that, it, that is God's. Now, I would also wonder whether there's a reason why we as Christians believe that God is the original rejoicer. And that's partly because of our doctrine of God, it seems to me. I mean, you made the very um, important comment, I think, Miroslav, that said a joy, joy always has an object. You know, we never just rejoice in itself. Joy always has an object. We rejoice over something. And when we, I suppose we... Th think of our Trinitarian understanding of God. We, we understand God as this community of rejoicing, where the Father rejoices over the Son, and the Son rejoices over the Father, and the Spirit is, is that spirit of rejoicing that's there. So in, so in a sense, there is that rejoicing within God, even before creation happens. So good, that's why it seems to me God is, is the one who rejoices, and creation comes out of the joy of, of God, because mm -hmm. there is that mutual rejoicing, mutual obedience, mutual trust, which I think is maybe part of the answer to your question, Father Ranieri, which is that you know, how, how do we obey? We obey when we trust the person we obey. So trust and discernment seem to be quite crucial. So we discern the voice of the one who is speaking and we trust the voice of the one who is speaking. Yes, Jesus trust, trusted his father. Yeah. I have a, a, a question. I remember some years ago, there was an atheistic mm, message going on in England, which was uh, uh, stuck in the, the buses of London, uh, God probably doesn't exist. So stop worrying and enjoy life. Yeah. Yeah. This slogan has always impressed me very much because it uh, suggests the idea that once you get rid of faith, you have more possibilities of rejoicing in life. But uh, what, uh, um, what um, makes me uh, reflect is why Christianity, which is uh, a message of joy, a proclamation of joy, gospel means good news, happy news. Why then Christianity, religion, faith, in, especially Christian faith, 
has been has ended up being associated with everything painful in life. The idea secular world has of faith and Christianity is that it's something more and, and very, very sad and saddening people. This is the common idea. If you, if you look at the, um, the writings of, of, of Nietzsche, especially, but also the characters of Ibsen dramas, the characters which personifies Christian uh, people are always sad people spreading gloom around them. Why this? Uh, uh, this is the topic of uh, my, my paper in, in the consultation. I think we Christians, we have given a, a pretext for that, insisting too much on sin, liberation from sin, and not uh, uh, insisting on the positive element of salvation, the new creation, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit, mm. the, 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 the communion with Jesus. Uh, and we must change something in our, the way we present our Christian message. Otherwise, people will associate Christianity not with joy, but with, uh, with uh, pain and, uh, uh, and austerity. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I was re recently reflecting, actually, about that very slogan that you, uh, on the buses in, in London, uh, right? Uh, God is probably doesn't exist, uh, so enjoy your life. And uh, it, it's, it's a kind of challenge, but I think also what it does, it kind of cheapens enjoyment. Uh, it almost suggests like uh, anything uh, that, that you want to do, go have a good meal, go have a sex or whatever you want at whatever time you want, that, that's kind of what enjoyment is. And it is a very rhetorically seductive uh, notion but it's also very much a, a flattened kind of joy that one is being encouraged on the count of God not existing. I, ultimately, I don't think that serves the atheist cause, right? This kind of joy that this slogan suggests is probably not joy truly worth having. Something deeper than that must be in view. Um, maybe one comment on, uh, on, uh, on the... Uh, difficulty of joy, mm. <laughs> and then the question for, for Father, uh, Father Cantalamesa. Um, you know, I, I'm always, I was struck with this uh, verse from Apostle Paul uh, that God loves a joyful giver. Now, uh, to, to give is to part with something. Uh, to give is in some way to sacrifice. Sometimes that's very welcome to us if we really love somebody, but, some, but sometimes, as in the case of the letter of Second Corinthians and Corinthians, uh, they had uh, these poor Jerusalem Christians on the other side of, uh, of the Mediterranean Sea. They now have to empty their pockets uh, and they have to send uh, money to, to, to Jerusalem. That's not that easy of a thing, it, uh, and normally it would make a person grumpy a little bit, right? You won't have things of your own because you're parting with them to give uh, to some, uh, somebody else. And I think that takes me back to something like the deeper joys. If we think of the very flat joys of something that's a reference to my own uh, immediate satisfaction, 
uh, then maybe Christianity won't be as much of a religion uh, of joy. But if we want to deepen our joys, if we want to give a greater scope and weight to our, to our joys and weight to our lives, maybe then we discover a kind of joy that otherwise cannot be, cannot be had. And I think, uh, I think the struggle uh, of sanctification in some ways is how to find the joy in doing what is, what is, what is right, right. How to find joy in giving of oneself. How to find joy not in getting gifts, but in giving uh, gifts uh, to others. Now, I have a question to, uh, for, for Father Cantalmesa and probably uh, and, and, uh, for, you, for you as well. Um, and that's, so, so obedience to God, there's kind of a lineup of obediences that we have now uh, kind of sketched obedience to God, kind of funds the obedience to, uh, in various other spheres of, of life. But doesn't it also call for disobedience? in various forms uh, of life? Doesn't it uh, call for a certain kind of freedom from the demands of others, uh, claims that institutions have on us, claims that political authorities have on us? I'm thinking of Apostle Peter uh, not obeying <laughs> um, the, the command that was given uh, to him in the early church out of the, uh, the inspiration of the Spirit and joy of the Spirit, but rather obeying God. So that there may be contrast also between the obedience to God and freedom from institutions that surround us. Yes, this is the objection uh, which has always been addressed to Paul, who at the beginning of chapter 13 of the letter to the Romans says, be subjected to every human institution uh, uh, because uh, sometimes, uh, like in totalitarian regimes, uh, disobedience becomes a duty. But this is an exception. Only when uh, really something evil is commanded, we are Otherwise, Jesus submitted to Pilate, to the Sanhedrin, to the authority. He submitted, uh, though they were unjust. Uh, against him. But when uh, the, the, the justice and uh, uh, the, the people, also the life of people is engaged, we, we, we must disobey. This is a big problem which uh, after the World War was, was uh, asked, uh, were the, the German uh, justified in obeying Hitler, but this is, applies to every totalitarian regime. Mm -hmm. So disobedience uh, is something which is also uh, obedience to God. So to obey God instead of being uh, uh, enemies. I guess what, what always strikes me about the Romans 13 passage that you very helpfully pointed us to is um, we, we get very hung up about, you know, well, does this mean we have to obey unjust authorities or whatever? But it, it seems to me that the, the crucial point at the heart of that is St. Paul's um, declaration, his insight that every human authority is given by God. In, every, every, in other words, every human authority is accountable to God. There is no such thing as an ultimate human authority. It's always penultimate. Every human authority, every government, every Every authority that we have within this world is accountable to God and therefore is penultimate, not ultimate. 
And that seems to be a really important thing to say because there are many human cultures that have not said that. When you think of Chinese emperors, you think of Roman emperors, they were God. And the state gets divinized. And we get the idea that um, authority becomes uh, absolute and unaccountable. And that's where I think we begin to get into that, that territory of obedience to God as opposed to the state or other, other authorities. And it's, really, it's a really important thing that St. Paul says there, which is quite unique in many ways. And the foundation of much of modern um, thinking of, of politics and democracy, this idea that every human authority is accountable, it's never ultimate. And that gives you, I think, the, the um, beginnings of the ability to discern where to obey and where, where some form of civil disobedience may be appropriate. Well, and some forms of freedom, right? Uh, so, so that obedience to God uh, can end up and can be the foundation of freedom. And even when one obeys, one obeys freely as responsible to God, but rega with regard to an institution, Nonetheless, one does so uh, not under constraint, but uh, under, uh, from free volition, because one is obliged to God rather than simply to the institution. I'd love to ask you a question, um, if I may. So, so far, um, you have very kindly and generously painted some very constructive pictures of obedience, joy, um, and, and freedom. And... Um, I'd love us just to almost meditate on the world and our culture, the cultures around us at present. And it seems that one of the deep themes undergirding each of these themes is this very deep question, or indeed a meta-level question, about what does it mean to be human? And I'm fascinated, I don't know if you feel you've noticed this as well, uh, and similarly, um, our theologians here, if you've noticed this as well, but it strikes me that the world around me, the culture around me, both popular culture and high culture, is suddenly talking a lot about what it means to be human. This, this sense of our culture is wrestling with what does it mean to be human. And I'm fascinated that this question is arising so sharply in our times. Um, I've just come back from a holiday with some friends where I was sat down around a, a dinner table and we were talking about uh, artificial intelligence, robotic and mechanical sciences advancing which they seem to be celebrating. And I found my gut churning inside me as I thought, but to what end? And where are we having the larger conversation about what does it mean to be human? Because if these things are ultimately about trying to get away from the fact of limitation, it's a flight from the fear of death, it's a striving to go into some kind of wild freedom to, to achieve some kind of infinity, where are the larger questions taking place in our culture about what we want certain technologies or advances or robotic sciences or whatever for? And, and what really struck me was when I tried to articulate this to my friends, they couldn't work out what it was I was trying to say. And what I was trying to basically say to them is, how are you working out what the meaning of life is rather than merely pursuing all these different resources that you're attempting to, to accumulate. Uh, one of my favorite things uh, to do is a bit of cultural exegesis, looking at the world around me. Um, I, I don't know if any of you have noticed there's a, an advert on a billboard um, for, for a, I think it's for a CD, and it has a vacuum-packed human. And every time I see that advert, my stomach churns, this idea that there's a human that's been vacuum-packed. 
Watching the culture churning over this question of what does it mean to be human? Could you be stored? Could you be frozen? Could you be opened up at will? We look at something like Games of Thrones, Game of Thrones and you see this idea of this wild, unbridled freedom that's indeterminate. And so it strikes me that the whole world around us is asking this deep, deep question underneath obedience, joy and freedom about what on earth does it mean to be human? And how do we even begin to talk about the meaning of life anymore? And perhaps even more worryingly than that, the meta-level question has disappeared entirely. That worries me. And so what I'd love to ask you is, what worries you? Because <laughs> I thought I'd just turn it into a therapy session since I had <laughs> such a stunning opportunity. What, what worries you? We've had these wonderfully constructive visions, but when you look at the world, with your themes in mind, what worries you about the culture around us at present and the direction in which we seem to be going? Um, if I can just start with one thing. Um, I think we, we are becoming quite a, a, a self-obsessed culture. Um, I mean, on a trivial level, we, you know, we can't take pictures of buildings anymore without taking ourselves in them. Um, <laughs> Uh, there's something about social media that seems to glorify a kind of self-regard, uh, the presentation of yourself uh, for consumption by other people. And um, that, that turning inwards, that sense of, you know, what I was saying earlier on, you know, we, 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 we become free when we find ourselves and we turn in to discover some internal kind of, you know, self that's there that has to be discovered and has to be found. And uh, it always strikes me, I, I, when I think of that, I think of um, Martin Luther's definition of sin, which is to be curved in upon yourself. And it strikes me that there's a lot of our culture which is quite curved in upon ourselves. And actually what grace does and what God does is to turn us outwards from ourselves towards God and towards our, our neighbor. So I do worry about that self-absorption that sometimes our culture um, uh, is caught up in. Because I, I think it also leads to that sort of separation from one another, that autonomy, that sense that we are freed when we are free from other people, uh, when we are independent from other people. That's freedom. And I actually think that's the wrong way to think about freedom. Freedom is found in our interdependence with one another. So. Yeah. Thank you. And living as a human, uh, human being within the constraints of our natural humanity is experiences as a kind of bondage as a kind of boundary that needs to be transgressed to pick up your, uh, your point, right? And that's why we are kind of imagining kind of transhuman uh, uh, imagination of what that might, uh, that might look like. And uh, that, 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 does, uh, that does worry me uh, in terms of um, uh, absence or lack of reflection of what it means to be human or even lack of resources to know how to pose, pose this question in an adequate, uh, adequate way. And it is a question that is, that is pushing, uh, pushing upon us uh, in a very significant way. Uh, and uh, it seems to me that um, combined with what, what you were describing as this, this uh, self-absorption uh, self um, and absence of clarity about who we are, um, how does one attend to other large issues that uh, keep me awake when I think about future generations? 
when I think about incredible disparities of wealth, uh, for instance. That they are absolutely stunning, extraordinary, and scandalous. Or when I think about what's happening to the natural habitats uh, and so forth, ecological issues, uh, they, they worry me. They're kind of large processes over which we seem not to have much control. But I think we, we, need to, we need to have an awareness of them because it's God's creation, it's God's creatures that are, that are at stake uh, there. And I think some of those questions can be uh, answered only when we know what our place is, who we are, uh, what makes for a life that is truly uh, worth, uh, worth living. So I, I go back to that question as one of the fundamental ones that worries me. How does one live before God as a creature that God has made. Can I say it is a beautiful, it is right to be human? Amen. <laughs> or is that just a kind of limitation that I need to squirm myself out of rather than celebrate the fact of God's creation of humans in God's image and say it is enough and good enough reason for joy, good enough reason to have limits, good enough reason to kind of live in obedience to the, to the, to the frame to which we have, into which we have been created. And then trust as a category, if I might add a fourth, <laughs> why not? Um, trust becomes extraordinarily important, doesn't it? Because as we accept our limitedness and our contingency as human beings and don't attempt to fly from that, we trust God for our resurrection. Hmm. We trust God to overcome. To answer your question, uh, yes, they are um, uh, working to, uh, to reach uh, artificial intelligence no? uh, through computer. I don't know a project to reach artificial love. And I think this is what being humans uh, means to be able to love like God is love. Beautiful and original point. Thank you. We've had some great questions that um, have come in, and some of these take us in a, a practical movement as well, which is helpful, thinking about how we begin to inhabit what we've talked about this evening. So we're asked, what are some practical disciplines that can help us towards a lifestyle of obedience, freedom, and joy. Some practical disciplines to begin to inhabit what you said this evening about obedience, freedom, and joy. To which the response is the contemplative line. <laughs> Good, that's a good start, don't you think so? <laughs> Actually, joking aside, it's a very good start. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> how, lo how long does one contemplate, right? <laughs> I have one trivia, uh, not, not, one small thing to say. Uh, and uh, increasingly to me, the importance of gratitude. Uh, appropriate gratitude uh, has been uh, clear for many, many reasons, but including that without gratitude, I think joy is impossible. And I think without gratitude also, maybe the proper obedience might be not uh, possible. So I think the ordinary task, uh, sometimes uh, perceived as trivial, of, of being aware 
of the things for which one can be and ought to be uh, grateful. I find it very helpful in my own life. I was um, talking with a friend the other day who's just come back from uh, a research project in uh, Nigeria working with very poor people and uh, people in Christian communities and asking the question, what sustains you in, a, in your faith in a place of real um, suffering and struggle? And she, was, she, she highlighted three things which I found fascinating. One was gratitude, that actually even in the poorest of communities, you will still find people who are grateful. You know, I'm grateful I've got a roof over my head where my neighbor, do, neighbor doesn't. Um, you're grateful for the, the, the smallest things, and it's that that led, you know, you, you could be caring for your neighbor because she hasn't got a roof over her head, well, you have. So gratitude in the smallest things. And the second was silence. Um, she found, surprisingly enough, people actually, the contemplative answer, that sense of being silent, not being talkative and busy all the time, and just having that silence to, in a sense, recognize how much life is a, is a gift and open oneself to the Holy Spirit and open oneself to, to God. And the third was, was community. It was uh, enduring this together, having people around you. Um, and uh, excuse me, again, obedience and freedom are things that we exercise in community. They're not things we do in separately from one another. So I just found that quite an interesting triad of, of disciplines, if you like, giving thanks, uh, keeping silence, and living in community as ways of, of developing this kind of life. From my point of view, obedience, I would suggest to try to see if the Lord calls you to make a change in your life, to make a reconciliation, for instance, or some other deep down in your conscience, you, you feel, you sense that the Lord doesn't want every, every, everything from you, but there is a, a particular uh, act that he wants uh, you to do. And try to, to obey. Uh, one ob obedience uh, will uh, prepare another obedience, and at the end we will uh, reach this peace which comes from obedience. But uh, I insist, because of, from my experience I know in the life of every person, there is some, a point which can be changed, an habit to change, a relationship to put right, uh, neglect all the rest and try to focus on this particular inspiration and try to obey. Thank you. Another great question. How should we wisely approach those in the public space who seek to limit genuine obedience, freedom, and joy? It, it looks like the answer is always contemplate. <laughs> <laughs> I think in terms of those who, uh, I, I, mean, I was struck by what um, Miroslav was saying earlier on about how uh, we find it very difficult to rejoice in our culture because nothing, nothing is ever quite good enough. Mm. Um, and uh, the contrast to that, to be uh, rejoicing in what is. And um, part of that is, in a sense, rejoicing in our limits. It's our, it's our limits that make us who we are. 
um, the fact that we have a body, the fact that we are, we come from particular parts of the world, that we speak particular languages, that we have particular friendships and communities. Those limits, the fact that we're not limitless, actually do, do make us who we are. They're part of our identity and sometimes rejoicing in that. So I, I, I wonder sometimes if there is a, a kind of spirit in our wider culture, whether that's located in political movements or whatever, that restricts joy, um, we just have to rejoice. And I think that, um, when, I think the, the idea of the, the, the church as a community of joy, a church that is meant to be um, speaking the joy of creation. Again, the Psalms have this idea of, you know, God rejoicing over his creation and the fields and the trees and the forests shout for joy. And uh, yet we as human beings have the responsibility to put those, the rejoicing of creation into words. And so part of our, of our responsibility in a world without much joy is to rejoice it's to worship. And um, I think the other thing that strikes me about, about that is if the, if the church is the community in which the Holy Spirit is concentrated doing his, his work, I'm always struck by a, a statement of, um, since, um, I think it was St. Um, Seraphim of Saroff, a Russian Orthodox priest, who says, the Holy Spirit turns to joy whatever he touches. And uh, I love that saying, you know, that, that a church which is open to the Spirit is a place of, of joy. And so I, I think we rejoice, I think we create communities of joy, we create communities of rejoicing, where rejoicing is possible in the middle of a culture where it's quite hard to do that. I don't know how to do to rejoice, but I can say how uh, I rejoice, what rejoices me. When I want to rejoice, I simply think that God, God loves me. And uh, this is a, a, a thought which uh, <clears throat> is never ending because the, the more you reflect on this and you, you give concreteness to this, God loves me, the eternal, the creator, the infinite love, loves me with such a love that no husband does for his spouse, no spouse for his, God loves each one of us. What a, a bigger reason for rejoicing than this. We have a final question for which we just have a couple of minutes. What is the meaning of life? <laughs> well, since you're here, we thought we'd go for it. <laughs> what is the meaning of life? How about this? Uh, Romans 14, 17. Kingdom of God. The reign of God is not food and drink, not just food and drink. It is righteousness, it is peace, and it is joy in the Holy Spirit. Yeah. For me, the meaning of life is to reach eternal life. I am close to reach it <laughs> at the age of 84. <laughs> <laughs>
That's not fair. I can't catch up with you unless God wills otherwise. <laughs> I don't think I can improve on either of those. Um, yeah, I think, I think for me, I go back to what I was saying a little bit earlier on about that uh, the meaning of life is somehow caught up in this, uh, the love of God, which enables us to love him in return and to love our neighbor. And it's only if, when we are caught up in the love of God that we are able to love God and to love our neighbor. It, his love comes first and our, ours comes second. And uh, that's why, going back to our cultural questions, that turn inwards, that turn away from each other, that, that turn towards autonomy, that somehow we are freed when we are free from one another seems to be such a tragic turn. Um, because actually it's only when we are caught up in the love of God that then frees us for obedience and frees us for the joy that we are caught up in the joy of God, um, which we begin to experience now in those moments, but we will one day experience in its fullness uh, when we are, as, um, well, who knows who's closest to it, but when we are caught up uh, into the presence of God himself. Well, before um, I hand back to Andy to uh, complete our time together this evening, I'm sure you'd love to join with me in thanking our guests this evening. That was GodPod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.